Why don't you go ahead and open up to Psalm chapter 49 this morning. We started a series in Psalms here, and I'll kind of repeat what I've shared before. Um, One of the things that I like to do uh, with the Psalms is to um, kind of go beyond just the meaning of the text and also help us to appreciate the poetry. Genre in the Bible is important. Because God wrote it a certain way means that he intended for us to appreciate the way that it's written. So there are some things that are written as historical narrative. We're supposed to understand that. It helps us interpret it. There's some things that are written as more prophetic or prophecy, like the book of Revelation. If we understand that genre, we can better understand it. Well, Psalms is one of those things that oftentimes we just kind of read through it and we don't appreciate the beauty of what God has done with it. And so um, I know for some that gets to be a little bit academic and a little bit challenging and maybe and uh, sometimes we don't always appreciate it but I think it's important for us uh, I think I've mentioned to you before that when I uh, the first time I really started studying through the Psalms um, I was motivated to do that because of a, the Hebrew I had taken in seminary and I kind of realized I don't really like the Psalms a whole lot because I've never been a poetic person I don't like poetry um, doesn't move me you know it's just like some forms of art just don't move me um, And so I thought, well, that's just not really good because it's part of God's Word and and I should learn to appreciate it. And I had had, I think at that point, three years of Hebrew and I thought, well, you know what? Let me approach it from a Hebrew standpoint. And I began to realize and see the poetry behind it, which is hard sometimes with English. You'll notice as we go through this that oftentimes different English translations sound a little bit different especially with Hebrew poetry, and it's because Hebrew poetry is kind of complex, it's difficult, it's some of the most difficult Hebrew to translate in the Old Testament. And because of that, there's variance. But that makes it, in some respects, really beautiful. And if you can see and appreciate those things, um, it helps us fall in love with not just what it says, but how the Lord chooses to say it. And so, the way that we typically do this here, as I get into it, is I'll spend a little bit of time on the front end, helping us to appreciate the particular psalm we're in and some of the poetry in the psalm. And then I want you to look at that and see those things as we go through it, okay? Uh, But let's start with this. This psalm is actually attributed to um, the sons of an individual named Korah. Now, there are a total of 11 psalms that are attributed to this group. In the time of David, they were basically leaders in choral or orchestrated music. They were part of his worship team is the best way to describe it. Now, we actually know some of their names. Um... Herman, or Haman, was actually a singer. There's a couple other individuals that are mentioned, um, Judathan, and then another guy named Asaph. Asaph actually is listed for 14 psalms personally himself. So he was a, a son of Korah. He was a part of this group that would write and perform the psalms and songs for, for David. But he actually wrote a number of them himself, and so when you look through the psalms, you might see Asaph's name there on a good handful of them. This psalm actually falls into what is referred to as a wisdom psalm. Psalms can be categorized. There are some psalms that are messianic psalms. There are some psalms that are wisdom psalms. There's psalms that are called laments, which are prayers or a crying out. There's psalms of praise. And so you have all these different categories of psalms. And one of them is the wisdom psalms. And that is what this one is today. A wisdom psalm is designed to teach us something about God specifically. So it's, it's uh, in some respects, a theologic psalm. And so it's going to teach us a principle that we can live by, and that's the focus of today's psalm. 
oftentimes these wisdom psalms focus on the differences between the Lord's ways and the world's ways, or between the foolish and the wise, sometimes even between the, we'll say, the rich and the powerful and those who are less fortunate. That's actually kind of where our psalm fits today, and we're going to see that. The main question that this psalm is going to present to us today, the theme, if you will, is when God's people are persecuted or face distress or face difficulty, should they fear or despair? I'm going to relate this to us here personally. Um, We live in a country that was founded on Christian principles. We've always had a certain amount of freedoms and respect. In fact, when I was in seminary, one of the most respected careers was pastor, came out at the very top. Today, that has dropped significantly somewhere down in the 15th, 16th, 17th level. Um, Christian ideals and values were respected and were honored, where today, what do we see? Chastised, ridiculed. Um, So we are living in a time where much what Jesus said would come true is now starting to come true that his people would be persecuted, his people would be hated. Now, in the rest of the world, we have to be careful, the rest of the world has faced this for hundreds, thousands of years. We have it mild here, but we do start to see here that start. And obviously, different groups of people and others have faced that that very kind of thing that that we're going to talk about this morning. But the focus this morning is on on whether or not we should fear when we are oppressed as God's people or persecuted. And uh, so just recently, I don't know if you you saw, one of the presidential candidates was asked a question about the LGBT um, movement and that, and asked about churches and their tax-exempt status. And the candidate replied, well, yes, they should lose that. We We should prevent anyone from holding those positions, and we should penalize churches and mosques and synagogues and others who don't share the same values we do. There should be some punishment for what they believe and for what they practice. And so we're going to see more and more of this. And to be real honest, if we look at those things, it would be very easy for us to say that we now fear or we're starting to despair, we're losing those freedoms and we're starting to face this opposition that Jesus told us we would all face. And so the psalm today is going to help us to answer that question. Should we fear, should we despair when we see those things? And again, just to keep it in context, it is nothing here compared to what our brothers and sisters in Christ face in other parts of the world. We think of what's going on in China, in North Korea, in parts of the Middle East and even parts of Africa where our brothers and sisters are facing serious, serious, life-threatening opposition. So, we've got to keep that in mind. But nonetheless, we will start to see more and more of that here. And how should we respond? What should we think? So, let's get into the structure of the psalm first, so we can appreciate the poetry. And then we're going to get into the te- what I'm going to call the teaching. The structure of this psalm, it breaks down into three parts today. So, I want you to have your Bibles in front of you, and I want you to look at this. The first four verses serve as the psalmist's introduction to what he's going to talk to us about. Then, in verses probably 5 or 6 through 12... He's going to talk about the common ending of all men. The common ending of all men. And then in verses 13 through 20, he's going to address the uncommon eternity. So that's kind of our outline today. We're going to look at primarily two things. The common end of every man and the uncommon eternity 
of every man. And he's going to use that to answer that question for us today. Now, there's a number of poetic elements here. We've talked about the parallelism that happens. Parallelism in Hebrew poetry is where the author says one thing, and then he just repeats it. That's one form of parallelism, right? But then another form of parallelism is where he says something, and then the next phrase he says the direct opposite. And there's names for those. We've I've given you some of those. So we're going to look for some of that today to appreciate it. It's not just that he's wanting to be repetitious. He's, he's being beautiful in his speech. And we do some similar things when we, when we talk. Now, one of the biggest poetic elements of this psalm is the contrast. He's going to use contrast. He's going to take these opposing ideas and go back and forth between them. He's going to talk about wisdom versus foolishness. He's going to talk about the low versus the high, or the rich versus the poor, or the eternal versus decay. He's going to talk about man versus beast, life versus death. So contrast plays a huge part in the poetry of this psalm. And so as we go through it, we're going to see those things. And again, they should help us to appreciate and understand not just what's being said, but how it's being said. You all know what simile and metaphor is, right? Similes, like or as. Um, he's going to talk about how men are like the beasts of the field. He's going to equate us to them. He's going to talk about as sheep and you can use metaphors like death as the shepherd. And so we're going to look for some of those things today as well and see those. The other thing he does is he uses repetition um, primarily in two very specific verses. I want you just to briefly look at verse 12 for me. Verse 12 of Psalm 49. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. And then all the way down at verse 20, he repeats that, but he repeats it with a little twist. In other words... He kind of changes it up just a hair. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. And so he uses that repetition to mark the psalm. In other words, the first section ends with that first statement, verse 12, and then he ends the psalm with almost an identical statement with a slight twist, which is going to be important to us. And so that's another element of poetry to this psalm when they repeat concepts or ideas, and they often use those to mark changes in the psalm or or sections of the psalm. And then the very last thing is we're going to see what's called some chiastic structure where he sort of says something, says something else, then he sort of repeats that concept, then he goes back to the first concept, and I'll point that out as we get there. So these are all just parts of the poetry. You may hear me reference them as we go through it. I would encourage you, as you read through the Psalms on your own, you look for things like this because they'll help you to learn to appreciate not just what is said but how the Lord says it because he chose poetry for a reason. God is a beautiful, glorious God, and that's the way poetry is. And so it shows us who he is. So let's go ahead and break this down. And let's learn from this this morning. So he starts off in verses 1 through 4 with his introduction. Let me read those for you. He says, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. You notice there's the parallelism there. Hear, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. Bow low and high, rich and poor. There's the contrast. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. That's his introduction. Notice his appeal begins with two commands. He says, hear, hear this, and then the second is, give ear. I love the way the New, America, or the New English translation renders it. Listen to this. Pay attention. It's exactly what he's doing. He's calling his audience. He's calling us, pay attention to what I have to say. And he's going to tell us that his words, the things that he's about to share with us, apply to every man, woman, and child on the planet. We know that because he breaks it out for us 
He says, first off, race or nationality doesn't matter. In other words, this doesn't just apply to one race or one nationality. He says, hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. He says, social standing or position doesn't matter. Notice in verse 2, he says, both low and high. Now, here's what's interesting about this. I mentioned the Hebrew poetry. You can't see this in the English, but you can see it in the Hebrew. He uses two words here. He says, in the first verse, or the first section there, both son of Adam, that's the word Adam, which is man, it's used in Genesis chapter 1, but then he says, and son of man, same word, right? No, it's a different Hebrew word, ish. He says, son of Adam and son of man, son of ish. And the reason that's important is it's not just another way to repeat the same thing over by using a different word, but he's likely talking about low and high, royalty and common. It's a way of sort of saying the breadth of the social status. And he says, listen to me, it doesn't matter what your social status is, both low and high, son of man or son of ish. And so whether it's race or nationality, whether it's social standing or position, both low and high there is a reference to, regardless of what your social status is, these words will apply to you. And that's going to be really important because he's going to set up sort of this opposition between the powerful and the wealthy against those who are being oppressed by them. And so low and high is going to come into play here for us. The final thing that he mentions here is economic status doesn't matter. Because he says, rich and poor together. So basically he's saying, what I'm about to tell you, listen up, because it applies to every one of you. No matter what your status is, no matter who you are, these words will serve you well. Notice he says there in verse 3 that his words will provide wisdom and understanding. He says, my mouth will speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. He actually goes on, he likens his words to a proverb and a riddle. He says, I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Now, a proverb is just a wise statement. We have the book of Proverbs, which is just a list of wise proverbs or wise statements that are made. A riddle is actually a cleverly devised statement or a question which kind of serves as a puzzle to be solved through applying wisdom and intellect to it. I know that's a big fancy definition of it. My daughter, Kimberly, not here this morning, but um, there's this young man on the cross-country team and they are constantly swapping riddles. She will come home, he said, oh, Josh gave me four riddles today. And then she'll come up with some riddles and she'll bring them to him at the next cross-country meet. They love to solve riddles. It makes you think. And she'll propose some of them to me and I might get 10% of them. I think she's much better at solving the riddles than I am. But um, riddles are often used as a way of making people think. You can tell them something, but if you do it in the form of a riddle or a question, it oftentimes will make them think about it. And so that's exactly what he's going to do. So he actually begins with this riddle for us. Look at verse 5. He says, Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. So the question he poses is somewhat rhetorical. He says, Why should I be afraid when I am facing trouble brought on me by my enemies, my adversaries? Well, it's a good question. It's primarily rhetorical here because he's going to give us the answer himself. But he wants us to think about it. Should we fear, another way to think of that is, should we despair 
as we look around us, as we see the persecution. Notice he specifically describes these enemies as those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. He's not talking just about the rich and powerful. He's talking about the rich and powerful who use that wealth, who use that power to oppress. It isn't a sin to be rich, not a sin to be wealthy, but it is a sin to use that power and wealth to oppress. Anybody. And so he says, these men are fools later on. He's going to dialogue about that for us. But he uses himself here as an example, and in the context of this hymn, he's really referring to the oppression that comes to God's people. Now, you could include in this oppression of any kind. Now, his focus is specifically God's people. But he says, when we see this, when we see the powerful, when we see the rich and the wealthy using that to oppress God's people or any people, he's asking, should we fear or despair? That's, I think, the typical response, isn't it? I mean, we whine and complain when we see certain rights being taken away. But the question is, should we? Look at what he does. He's going to actually answer this for us in the rest of the psalm. And he's going to do it by proposing two thoughts to us. The first is the common ending of every man. The common ending of every man. Look at verses, uh, let's see, 7 through 12 here. He says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of the soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternity, or eternally, that he should not undergo decay. So what's the primary point of that? He basically says no man, no matter how powerful or wealthy, can prevent death. That's what he's saying there in his poetic language. No man, by any means, can prevent his death. Which means that the common end of every man is just that. We're all going to die. He refers here to the man attempting to buy back his brother's life by paying a ransom to God so that he can escape death. The language really here is this idea of no man can prevent death by trying to buy his way out of it. It's an interesting um, concept, especially when considering the wealthy and the powerful that control so much that they might think, well, we can cheat death. Well, we know that's kind of a ludicrous idea. I don't think even the rich and powerful would consider that. But that's the thing that he's primarily focused on here. He's saying every man will ultimately face death, and there's no way to cheat it. There's no way to buy your way out of it. It doesn't matter how how wealthy or powerful you might be, you're going to face death. He mentions about the, the cost being too high, and you'll notice your, your translations might have varied significantly from what I read, and it's because in this particular verse, the Hebrew there is very difficult. Um, not just from the, the words itself. One of the problems with Hebrew is that there are some words that are only used one time, and we don't find them anywhere else outside the Bible. Well, it's hard to define a word if you only see it used one time, and you don't see it anywhere else. And so there, there's some stuff going on like that. And so some translations basically refer to it as the cost being so high that you should just simply stop even trying. That's the way the New American Standard writes it. 
other translations actually say the cost is so high that no earthly ransom could possibly be enough to pay it off. And you're, I think if you have an ESV or an NIV, it might say something along that idea. Others, like the King James and the New King James, kind of give the idea that the cost is so high, you just die and go to the place where dead people go. Um, so, But either one of those three translations are, are really true. There is no way to prevent death physically. You know, I saw an article a couple of weeks ago about um, some new stuff where they're thinking, maybe we finally found the, the, you know, the uh, fountain of youth and we can now start to reverse aging and so we might live a thousand years. And my, at first thought, I kind of chuckled. I said, I, I just can't see that happening. But my second thought was, I don't think I want to live a thousand years. <laughs> you know, third thought was, but they still die even after a thousand years. So regardless, the psalmist's point here is that no man can prevent that. The common end of every man, ultimately, is that he's going to die. The author's main point, that we're all going to die, the proof of that is actually found in what he says next. Look at verses 10 through 11. All men die and leave their wealth to others. Isn't that true? Verse 10, he says, For he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike perish, and they leave their wealth to others. In verse 11, he says that all men end up in the grave. Let's go ahead and read verse 11. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. In other words, they're thinking that we're going to live forever. Our wealth will go on. He says they've called their lands after their own names. In other words, their legacy even will go on. So maybe maybe they'll physically die, but their, their name will go on forever. They'll live eternal or live forever in that sense. Now again, there's a lot of variances in verse 11 here with some of your English translations um, as to how they handle this. I like the way that the um, New American Standard handles this because I think it's probably the best rendering of it. And what I mean by that is the NIV and some others read this way. Their tombs will remain their houses forever. Their dwellings for endless... I'm sorry, uh, let me finish this up. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. I think I prefer that translation, actually. And the reason is, um, I think the point that the psalmist is trying to make here is that when they die, the grave is their destiny for all eternity. There's no hope after that. So the NIV renders it that way, the New American Standard renders it slightly differently, but... um, the overall concept that the, that the psalmist is trying to present for us here is that the common end is that we all die. And for some, that's it. That's where they'll stay. In the grave. So he sums up, in part, the answer to his question in verse 12. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. Pomp refers there to sort of, you know, the pomp and circumstance here, but the wealth and the power and all those things. The NIV reads it this way, People, despite their wealth, do not endure. He is like the beast that perish. Again, the emphasis so far is really on physical death here. Not quite yet spiritual death. He's going to get to that in a moment. But he's talking primarily here about physical death. So, basic point that we've learned so far is he says, okay, when you look at what's happening, when you look at the persecution, when you look at the oppression, should we fear? And the first way that he starts to answer that is say, well, 
Look at the common end of every man. What's the great equalizer? It's death. It really is. It doesn't matter how powerful you are, you're going to die. It doesn't matter how poor you are, you're going to die. The great equalizer is death. Now that's not necessarily a great answer so far, is it? I don't think that that satisfies many of us. And that's where the next part of this psalm is fantastic. Because he's now going to move, not for, or he's going to move from the common end of every man to the uncommon eternity. And that's where things get interesting. That's where things now diverge. That's where he's going to ultimately answer the question as to why we do not need to fear. I want you to look at verses 13 through 20. This is the way of those who are foolish. What he's just talked about. And of those after them who approve their words. In other words, this is the way, that's ultimately the end for the foolish. And the foolish he's talking about here are the ones he's just described. Okay, Those who oppress God's people. Verse 14, As sheep they are appointed for shale. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. And their form shall be for shoal to continue, or shale as some pronounce it. So they have no habitation. There's a lot going on there. But basically, you might be asking, how in the world does talking about death answer his question? Well, he's going to tell us now. All men face a common end, but they do not all face a common eternity. Let me repeat that. While all men face a common end, they don't all face a common eternity. Fools, he says, in this passage, ultimately will face eternal judgment. Look again at what he does in 13 and 14. This is the way, this is what happens to those who are foolish. They end up in the grave. What happens to the fool, he says, verse 14, as sheep they are appointed to shale, death shall be their shepherd. Isn't that a great word picture? Death will be their... What's a shepherd supposed to be? He's one who leads, he's one who guides, he protects, he directs. He flips that on his head. What a great poetic word picture. Death shall be their shepherd. Death, in other words, will be the one that cares for them. That's not a good, positive, upright thing. He says, and the upright the opposite of the fools, God's people, if you will, they will rule over them ultimately in the morning. And their form shall be for shale or shoal to consume. That's another great word picture. Having their lives consumed in shale. It says here so that they have no habitation. They have no life. They will not be living here. Now, let's clarify this real quickly here. Shale, in an Old Testament um, Testament concept, Sheol was the place that every person went after death, both the righteous and the unrighteous. It isn't hell. It's the place all dead people go. But within hell, in the Old Testament concept, there was a place called Abraham's bosom, which is where the righteous went to await resurrection. The other side of Sheol was what we would refer to as hell. It's where the wicked go and wait for eternal judgment by the Lord. And so the old concept is that if you were righteous, you would die and go to Sheol, but the Lord would not leave you there in Sheol. David alludes to this. And so the idea was that, it, that you die and you go to Sheol, but the righteous wait for the resurrection and wait with joy on the Lord. The rest 
are simply waiting for the judgment of the Lord. And so what he's basically done here is he's saying, everybody dies, everybody goes to Sheol, but guess what? The unrighteous, the fools, will have death as their shepherd, will be consumed in Sheol. There is no hope of resurrection for them. But look at what happens. The opposite is actually true for the upright. The opposite is actually true for the Lord's people. Verse 15, But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Man, there are so many theological... We could spend a whole morning on just that one verse. I'll try to summarize it here. I want you to first notice God in that sentence. Remember earlier he said, Man cannot redeem. Same word. Man can't do it. The cost is way too high. But he says here, but God, the two most important theological words in the whole entire Bible, but God. And so here he says, but God, God can do this. The second thing I want you to notice is that word redeemed. It actually means to ransom or to buy back something. There's a price that has to be paid. Remember, man couldn't do it. It's way too high. And he says here, but God will redeem. That's important because it states that there's a price that has to be paid in order to free somebody from the penalty of death. Do I have to ask what that price is? The Bible makes it absolutely clear that the price that the Lord paid to redeem us, to buy us back from the penalty of death, was the blood of Christ. The Bible makes it absolutely clear. We went through the book of Romans not too long ago, and Paul's amazing doctoral thesis on the gospel made that abundantly clear that even though we were condemned to hell, to eternal judgment, God in his righteousness chose to condemn his own son, put him on a cross to pay the penalty that only he could pay so that he might be able to redeem, to buy us back. And I love the last thing I want to point out about this verse here. That last phrase, He will receive me. That's important because God didn't just pay the penalty. God didn't just ransom us. God didn't just buy us back. What He did was He said, I want to receive you to snatch you back, is a great way to read that word, snatch you back from the jaws of death so that I might receive you to myself as my people. Man, what an amazing thought. And so what the psalmist is doing here is he basically has said, while every man has a common end, we don't all face a common eternity. Because the foolish, the wicked, those who hate God's people, those who oppress God's people, will have death as their shepherd. But God has purchased me back. He has bought me back. He has paid for my sin. He has snatched me back from the jaws of death that I might be received by Him. So with that, the psalmist finally provides the answer to his question. Do we need to fear? Do we need to despair when we see this world, whether it be the rich and powerful politicians, or government officials, or just the the people that have all the power to be able to oppress when they oppress God's people, 
if we look at that, if we focus only on that, there is cause for fear, anxiety, despair, is there not? Because there's no hope. In fact, I've been working on another psalm, and, and David deals with the same concept of It's a psalm about confidence and trust. And he ends it with an amazing statement. He basically says, If I had not realized and understood these things about God, I would have despaired. I would have despaired. And he ends it with, Wait on the Lord. Let your heart be encouraged and wait on the Lord. And so what we see here with the psalmist is he says, we don't have to fear or despair because we know something about the Lord. Ultimately, what he's getting at here, and he doesn't come right out and say it completely, but he does allude to it, is that those who do that, those who do not love the Lord, those who oppress the Lord's people, those who persecute the Lord's people, will face the Lord. There will be an ending for them, but that ending is very different than God's people. We have hope, but they don't. They will be judged for their actions. Look at what he says in this in the very last verse. It's verse 20. I told you to sort of keep in mind verse 12 because he makes a very similar statement. Verse 20, he says this. Let me, actually, let me, let me read... Um, Let me read verse 16 and following. He says, Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. When he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives and he congratulates himself, and though men praise you, meaning him, it's another way to, poetic way of referring to the individual, when you do well for yourself, that's sort of an accusation for those that might be reading it that are doing this, He shall go to the generation of his fathers. In other words, he'll die just like the rest of them. And they will never see the light. They won't be resurrected. They won't be taken to the Lord. They won't be redeemed from death. And then he closes with this. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Now here's where this is cool. Again, this is the poetry part of it. Remember, he repeats this phrase. It's very similar. Look back at verse 12 with me. Verse 12, he says, But man in his pomp will not endure. He's like the beasts that perish. Now he says, Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. What's different about that second phrase? Anybody want to help me out here? Audience participation? Yeah. Notice the first time he says he will not endure. Now he says he will not under or he will um, not understand, or yet without understanding. Why is that important? The first time he uses this phrase, he's talking about the common end of men. In other words, what does every single man share in common with beasts, animals? They're all going to die. They're not going to endure, right? But now, what's the difference? Because again, he's likening man to beasts. But how is he doing it this time? Man with his pomp, yet without understanding. Who's that? That's the fools. Now he's saying, only the fools are like beasts of the field. In what respect? They lack understanding, but there's something else too. Now, some of you might not like this because you want all your pets to go to heaven. Yeah. Animals are not promised resurrection from the dead. We are. 
So he does this neat little poetic twist here. Now, I'm not saying animals won't be in heaven. There's, if you understand the book of Revelation properly, God recreates the heavens and the earth, and I personally believe that we will see animals on the earth. He's going to repopulate the earth, is what the book of Revelation tells us. Okay? How that all works out, I don't really know. Um, but I'm assuming there'll be you know, probably more dogs and cats. At least I'm hoping there are. But... But look at what he does there. Isn't it, isn't it cool how he kind of twists that a little bit? You've got to think about that for a moment. Okay? That's what the poetry is designed. You have to think about it. Wait a minute. Why is this phrase a little bit different in verse 12 as in verse 20? Well, the reason is in verse 12, that applies to everybody. Everybody is like beasts because we all die. But not everybody is like beasts in that some have the hope of resurrection. It's those without understanding, those that are fools, those that oppress God's people. They're still like the beasts of the field. You and I aren't. Because we have the hope of resurrection, just like the psalmist said. So what do we, what do, we do with this? Again, I think we need to be a little careful in that we still... I think we have to be careful in how we whine and complain and how we despair when we see things happening around us. Partly because we have to see it in its context. Look around the world and our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing horrific, horrific persecution. We don't face that quite the same way here yet. Now, some people have in different ways. Okay, We can't ignore that either. Oppression is always bad. But the neat thing about it is God always sees it. God always sees it. And he's got a heart for it. We see that with Jesus, where, who did Jesus hang out with when he came? You know, he came and hung out with the lowly and the oppressed and the ones who got the shaft here, you know? And he's got a heart for that. But even that's not quite enough, because what the psalmist tells us here is to look beyond that. And instead, look to the big picture which is that the Lord in the end will ultimately deal with it for us. He will not forget his people. So all those who name the name of Christ, all those who love, honor, serve Christ, need to look sort of past this. It doesn't mean we ignore it. It doesn't mean that at all. It simply means that to prevent ourselves from facing despair, Realize, you know what? Those who oppress us, those who hurt us, those who push back against God's people will not get away with it, will they? They all face the same end that all of us do. And someday, we'll all stand before the Lord. The Lord tells us, for some... Death will be their shepherd. For others, the Lord will buy us back, raise us to life, and make us his own for all eternity. See what happens when you put your focus on that instead? And that's really what the psalmist is trying to do here for us. Is he's, he's not saying that oppression doesn't matter and that we shouldn't do our best to, to deal with that oppression here and to deal with those issues. What he's saying is we shouldn't despair. Put our focus where it needs to be and on the Lord being the great equalizer, the great judge who will 
deal with it on our behalf. What an amazing, amazing thought. Our focus should always be eternal. And if we don't, as David says in another one of the Psalms, I would have despaired had I not known this. And so hopefully this morning, what we have here is some encouragement to encourage us. I, I, I look around and I, I see what's happening and see how even just wearing the name of Jesus sometimes. Um, I've not faced a whole lot of persecution in my life, but I have had things that uh, disturbed me greatly. I remember phone calls that I had received that being cussed and yelled and screamed at on the phone simply because somebody knew that I was a believer. Now, that's not common, but those things hurt, and you're kind of like, why? And you want to just, no. But again, that's mild. That is so mild. But I do believe a time is coming here in the United States where we will face more severe persecution, and we need to keep our mind and our focus on what this psalmist tells us to do. Let's not despair. Let's not lose hope. Let's look to the Lord and look for his eternal purpose and all that. Amen?